Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Tiziana Cassiero is a professor of organizational behavior at the Rotman School of Management and the holder of the Marcel Desitals Chair in Integrative Thinking at the University of Toronto. Tiziana's research explores how structural and psychological forces jointly shape behavior in organizations. Her work on organizational networks, power dynamics, change implementation, and professional networking has been published in Administrative Science Quarterly, Academy of Management Journal, Management Science, and Harvard Business Review, and featured in The Economist, Financial Times, The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, USA Today, Forbes, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, Fortune, and Time. Tiziana served as senior editor at Organization Science, a trade journal that publishes fundamental research about organizations, including their processes, structures, technologies, identities, capabilities, forms, and performance. Her most notable awards, including the Outstanding Publication and Organizational Behavior Award of the Academy of Management and the Thinkers 50 Radar List of the 30 management thinkers in the world, most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led. Tiziana has worked at three universities in three countries, influencing thousands of students and future leaders along the way. And most notably, her latest work, Power for All, which led me to her and our ensuing relationship. Hi, Tiziana. Welcome to the One Away Show. Thank you, Brian. So good to finally connect here after some circuitous route around it. We found each other. We we did. Uh, I remember when your book was shared, Power for All, in September, and uh, I immediately reached out to you. I was, and uh, and so I'm so glad we've been able to build such a beautiful relationship the last few months. And uh, yeah, welcome. Likewise, Brian. As I, as I told you already, you are one of the best things that this book has brought into my life. So. Thank you for reading it and for being taking the initiative to reach out. Oh, of course. Well, it's uh, it works both ways. I'm excited to dive in. So tell us, you know, Tiziana, what is the one away moment that you want to share with us today? I thought about it a lot and uh, I, I, I kept going back to an overnight train ride to independence. Mm. That was my... Uh, one away moment. And it's not the midnight train to Georgia. It's more the 8 p.m. train to Milan, Italy. <laughs> but that was a pretty important moment. It happened when I was 18. I lived at that time in the very deep end of the heel of the boot of Italy. If you, uh, Picture Italy in your mind, it is shaped like a boot and it has a heel and the toe is Sicily. Uh, the, the top of the boot is, you know, Lombardy, Milan, right underneath the Alps. And uh, my father comes from a very small town deep 
in the heel of the boot, basically across the sea from Albania and Greece. And the sea, there's a Mediterranean Sea everywhere there. It's that deep down. Mm. And uh, I didn't grow up there. I grew up near Milan, uh, more precisely on Lake Como, a beautiful spot, and uh, had the life of a northern Italian gal. Uh, I uh, intended to, you know, go to school in Milan and do the Milanese things. But my dad insisted on moving the family back to his hometown down there. And this is an area of Italy that is very beautiful, but very isolated and kind of backwards. Mm. Um, Not not necessarily in in a mean way. It's just that there are very few opportunities there. It's kind of a, a death of enterprise in a place like that. You can go on a gorgeous vacation, but living there, especially when you're young and you want to expand your horizons is actually a perfectly good way of narrowing your horizons. Mm. And um, I spent three years there, Mm. the last three years of high school. And then a moment came to decide what I was going to do with myself. And um, it was a really difficult choice, actually, because my mother, who had always been the pillar of my life, the person that I could lean on and who understood me, who was there for me at all times, wanted me to leave. And I wanted to leave because we knew that it was not enough for mm. me to live there. That there were bigger and better things awaiting me. But live, living there, uh, leaving there, I should say, would have meant abandoning my mother mm. in, in, a, in a place that is not very good for women. Mm. Uh, it's a very patriarchal environment. Italy as a, as a whole is not particularly good to women and women mm. that, that have opinions about what they want to do with themselves. But certain areas that are a little more backwards are more so. And so, you know, it, it was the first time that I really had to make a choice about pursuing my path uh, while severing ties with my past and where I had come from. Mm. And it wasn't an easy one. And I remember taking this train, so Italy is very long, and this train ride from where I was to Milan is like a 12 hour train ride and you do it overnight, typically. Mm. And I remember taking that ride and uh, crying my eyes out on Mm. this train compartment I was the only woman in a company of six people. And there were these five guys, middle-aged, I was 18, and I could not stop crying. I wa- it was irrepressible sobbing. And these dudes didn't know what to do with me. They were looking at me like, what are we gonna do with this girl who can't control herself. And the, and the reason why I was crying that, that badly was that I knew that it, that was it. Mm. I had left. I had left my family. I had, I had decided to make this move. And, you know, you realize on occasion that you've got to take the leap. Yeah. 
And uh, even when it's scary, even when you are really torn about the consequences of you taking the leap mm. for others that you care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's a severing that can be quite painful. But um, as you know, from your own living in your life, it's necessary at times. And it was the beginning of my finding my path mm. forward. And there were other moments of departure afterwards, but that was the very first. And the, other, the, the next ones were complex uh, too, but I had done it before at that point and I knew that, that I could. Wow. Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing such a formative period, right, of growing up and and taking that leap on your own and on your own terms. And I think what's interesting as well as you were talking, you know, in the United States, right, it's high school, you're expected to go to college. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, it's not it's scary, but it's not as like, it's just expected. And I think what's so interesting about what you're saying is maybe it was bigger than that for you, not to compare, but it was a next page in your life and where, where you had to leave your mom and what, you know, what you had known the last three years to, to really start anew. So, yeah, right. You know, for, for an American, it's just par for the course. It's what pretty much everybody does if they can afford it, of course, right. which <laughs> not everybody can. Uh, and uh, in, in, in Italy, it's not quite that obvious, but uh, you're right that there the were special circumstances where you, it was not just my taking the leap. It was who I was leaving behind and what I knew would mean. Right. And like leaving your, your old self behind truly. Right. Cause you knew the world was much bigger. So just, I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, you have a, a bold and beautiful, like kind of presence. And I have to imagine growing, I'm, I'm curious, like growing up, did you constantly, were you constantly maybe pushing boundaries? Were you constantly never maybe quote unquote settled? Like what, what was childhood like where you, where you maybe had that inner, you know, that you had that inner urge clearly to leave what you knew there was something pressing for, for something more. So I'm just curious how you describe growing up to that point and kind of the person that you were prior to the first departure. Hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, it was this train ride was, it was a, we went away from independence. Yeah. And I think that was a big driver. I, I always felt that I had to be my own person, that I had hmm. to stand on my own two feet. Hmm. And part of it was a result of having observed around me what happens to people when they don't have their own um, God bless the child who's got his own, the song goes. And it was uh, evident to me that being in a dependent situation uh, really curtails a lot of people's dreams. Mm. A lot of of, uh, their ability to find what they're good at and find a way to make a contribution and grow and learn and become better. So... The, the, the awareness that I had to 
pick up and leave, despite the very, very strong bonds that they were holding me mm-hmm. in place, was really driven by this allergy. I'm allergic to a feeling of dependence, mm. which is interesting because I learned afterwards that I am allergic to both directions of dependence. I do not like to be dependent on others, but I don't like others being under my thumb either. Mm. I don't like to be the driver. I I turned out to actually what I really aspire to, and and it's driven me to different places, to different roles, to different uh, aspirations, is I've learned that most people thrive in being mutually dependent on Mm. others, Mm. where I have something that you need, but you also have something that, that I need. And in that interdependence, when we embrace it, we understand it, and we decide that it's a good thing, mm. the best thing humanity does reside. It's not in the asymmetry where you hold me under your spell or I hold you under mine, mm-hmm. that we do the best things we can do. It's in when we realize that we need each other and uh, we can learn from each other and mm-hmm. we can help each other. And that's when I can do my best work and you can do yours. Yeah. But it took me a while to get to that point. The first instant was the instant of, of being independent and not being subjected to anybody's whims. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's powerful. I mean, I love what you said about interdependence and both people have something of maybe equal power or access that is shared and valued where it doesn't create a dependent codependency or dependency from one side or the other. Yeah. And that's right. And there's a big difference actually. Uh, thank you for mentioning that because codependence and mutual dependence are actually very different emotionally. Uh, codependence is really when you are unable to take flight on your own. You are mm. fearful. It's a fear based reaction. Mm. Mutual dependence is a growth uh, aspirational uh, reaction. It's a collaborative reaction. Mm. And they, they have very different effects on, on how we act and what we are able to accomplish. So wow. bad codependence, very, very bad. Mutual dependence, very, very good. But it, it's very hard for people to recognize it because you clear, you jump right away into thinking, Oh, that means that everybody is equal and this egalitarian at all cost approach is a a dream that cannot be realized because the world is not equal. People are not equal. There are going to be differences. And absolutely, it's true. There will be differences. But the mutual dependence can hinge on very different kinds of things that we help each other with. Yeah. I may be good at this particular task, you may be good at this particular emotion mm-hmm. and uh, both are needed. Yeah. Right? It, it doesn't mean that we give up on the idea of being distinctive. Mm-hmm. We're still going to be distinctive, but we're going to be distinctive in, in a harmony and mutual support. Totally. Yeah. I love that you differentiated that because I think it's great context for my next question. You know, you can give like language and architecture to things. It's healing and powerful at the same time. And uh, 
to distinguish that is great. So for you, you know, you mentioned that this train ride metaphorically was a train ride to independence, but before you were able to do that, you clearly knew the feeling of being curtailed or constrained uh, previously. What did, what did that feel like for you? And maybe how did that show up for you prior to taking that train ride? Yeah, it was um, an awareness that the context in which we live and grow up shapes us so much and that you're not, you're not just an Island. You're not, you're not uh, in control of your options and your fate. Uh, Your context drives so much of it. And for me, this move from the bustling north of Italy, I grew up in one of the most dynamic parts of my country to one of the most sleepy and uh, really isolated parts of of my country. And that immediately showed me that the context changes everything. Mm -hmm. And I saw that's where the feeling of constraint or actually potential constraint, because while I was there, I was a teenager in high school. I mean, how much constraint is is there really? You, You do your thing, you go to school, you study, you meet people, you make friends. And it was okay, but I knew that the future was going to be very constrained if I stayed there. I, I was right, actually. It was other, a lot of young people leave the, these areas. You go, you go to a place like that, you don't see them because they, they understand that you got to find the space where the opportunities, where the stimulation, where the people around you allow you to grow up and grow into a better person. Um, sometimes you just grow up to be uh, wealthier and which, which uh, for many an ambition, but it was really more the question of, of extricating myself from a context that could only do so much. That could hmm. only open up a certain paths and many others would be foreclosed. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love how you described just, I think the context, like it was very, you could just kind of see it and the, the, you're right. I do think certain environments, you do just feel that sense of constraint. And that I think also shows growth as well. And awareness that there is something deeper in the, or bigger in the world for you or that your soul kind of needs to go find. So I I also, uh, people like you and I are are very lucky because we get to make those choices. We get Mm. to pick up and leave. And there are people who can't pick up and leave. Or when they do end up in some refugee mm. camp, you know, uh, the, the recent news um, on the front is when uh, the, the tennis champion Novak Djokovic was detained in Australia. He was put in this hotel where people who had tried to leave a very bad context, very limiting context, if not dangerous uh, for many of them, are stuck. Mm. Go from one stuckness to another stuckness. Mm. And even though you did your best, you tried your hardest. And I cannot even imagine the, the difficulty of, of arriving to a, a, a hotel in some city in Australia, trying to make a life for yourself, to escape something terrible and fearful. They don't get to go anywhere. Right. So we, so in, the, in that sense of what I mean, context we are at the mercy of our context and we have a little bit of degree of freedom. 
Mm. And the question is for us, what we do with it. Mm. But we don't determine how much of it we have. Interesting, yeah. You and I got some. Many, many people got, get much less. Right. But, you know, the good news is that we, we took it. <laughs> we took whatever freedom we had and we did something with it. Totally. And like yourself, which we can get to, you have used some of your knowledge and your learnings to give back through your, your latest work uh, in a very impactful way. But I think you're right. It's really important to acknowledge privilege. Not everyone's able to maybe take a journey uh, in a profound way or multiple journeys because of their environments. And so for the people that do, it might even bring more responsibility for them to go out and help others do the same. So let's, let's move to the post train of independence. Um, so we diagnosed kind of the past a little bit here, which has been fun, but for you, you know, you, you, took this train, you had no idea maybe what was next, where, where you were going to go, how you're going to get there, who you were going to meet along the way. What were some of the first moves, you know, after that train ride that you look back on and, you know, what, like what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, um, there's a, there's an aspect of what happened uh, right after, you know, the, the following few years that I, I like to to share because uh, I see a lot of people that, uh, especially young people, that really struggle to to find their path and and I mean it in a very concrete way. I mean, what should I study if I go to college? You know, at that level of who am I? What do I want to do? How do I see myself? Uh, you know, five years, ten years from now. And uh, when I took that train. I didn't really know what I wanted to do at all. It mm. was I had struggled mightily to decide what on earth I was going to study in university. I, I could have studied all kinds of different things. I considered a million things, really everything from industrial chemistry to oriental languages and anything in between I considered as something that could have been interesting. So I, I was not the type who had a vocation that knew what to do. And I had somebody right next to me, my older brother, who was the opposite. He had a vocation. He knew exactly what he wanted to do by age 15. And that was be an art historian. And the the, the level of love for that in his life uh, is unmatched. I once asked him, so if you had not been an art historian, what would you have done? And he just stopped cold in his tracks and hesitated and then said, I, I can't, I can't imagine my life without it. So we are very different, all of us, in terms of the clarity of what we want to use our skills and our abilities for. Some people have a clear vocation, good for them, lucky them, because it gives them a, a, a movement forward that is not as conflicted. Mm. But I was not like that. I could have done a million different things. So the first few years after that train ride were um, just putting my head down, doing this course of studies that I had eventually picked up not knowing exactly what I would do with it. And it was a series of serendipitous encounters and 
uh, ideas and stimulations that led me to be, to want to become an academic. Hmm. Something that I had no idea I would want to do, even when I was well into my university, my college studies, I, it came up really by itself over time. And so to me, that is encouraging to anyone who doesn't know exactly what they're about and how they may invest their energy. It's okay. It's okay. You will find it. If you keep looking, you keep searching, you keep thinking and maybe keeping in touch with what gives you a little more satisfaction and what uh, tickles your interest. But you don't have to be super duper passionate about something. I I really find it um, just daunting, this notion, oh, you should do the the job you're passionate about. Well, what if I don't have such a passion? Hmm. What if, if I need to do well, to do something good, and over time find what's nice about it, maybe for others, maybe mm-hmm. what kind of impact I can have, what kind of legacy I can build. But don't ask me to be passionate right now because I may not be. Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel, it makes a lot of people feel inadequate. There's something wrong with them that I don't have a clear cut thing yeah. that they're all about. It's all right. Most people don't. Uh, in my assessment, yeah. so just re- rejoice in the fact that you, there are multiple paths possible and uh, one way or another, something will work out, but you have to keep exploring. They have yeah. to give yourself license to learn about yourself enough that you can explore and, and eventually fall into something that, that gives you satisfaction. Totally. And I love, I love what you said about the license, you know, giving yourself that license to explore and knowing it's okay to not have it all figured out right away. A question I have for you though, is this, and I think back on, I was in such a rush to find the thing, uh, for various reasons of the past, but um, so I'm going to ask this question from a place of personal context for you, you know, the few you gave yourself that license to explore, but what were maybe some, how did you determine or what were some of the signals or clues when you knew, Hey, this is a, a direction that I should keep heading down versus, Hey, this is a direction that maybe I should not keep heading down. How did you follow the signals of maybe where the journey was supposed to take you versus forcing what it maybe should have been? Right. I've, I've learned, and actually it turns out that the research in, in these um, emotional reactions to different circumstances, it tells us that you have to put yourself as close to the decision point as possible, because your gut, which is your emotions, will tell you if that's the right path. So I'll give an example. I was literally thinking that I should study Oriental languages. And Oriental languages, in, in, in Italian, uh, there's a, a way to represent, basically East Asian languages. That's really what it means. And we're still using sometimes old-fashioned, politically incorrect labels for such things. But there's a wonderful department of East Asian languages at the University of Venice, uh, world-renowned, and um, that comes from a lot of history of, of trade between Venice and, and the East. 
And I really considered it. I really thought that that's what I wanted to do. And to sort it out, I went and visited, which I know a lot of people in the United States when they decide on college, they go and visit. And those are very good things to do because you put yourself in that context Mm. where you would have to be if you go down that path. You talk to people in that context, the people that you would have to interact with, work with, study with, if you were in that context. And even just the ambience, even just the, the visuals, the smells, the conversations mm. will give you a reaction. And that reaction is an emotional reaction that is very informative for your decision. It will tell you much more than some more abstract, more distant contemplation of that option. It is more, you know, cold and rational. It's not close enough to give you a, a gut reaction. And so that's what I did. I just went. I mm. went and, and, and visited and, and smelled the air and looked at my surroundings and, and felt better or worse in different places. And that's when I knew. And that's when I knew that which one mm. was the right one. And I've done it actually afterwards all the time. And it turns out that the research tells us that that's true. I have a, a very, very, very dear friend, Professor Wharton. Uh, her name is Sigal Varsade, who has studied emotions in beautiful and deep ways. And she always tells us, her colleagues or friends or students, listen to your emotions. Pay close attention because your emotions are carrying a lot of information. And that's what I mean when I say, if you put yourself closer to that context that you're you're considering, your emotions will give you the information you need to know. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, I I think it's so neat how you, I I mean, that just phrasing up, you got to put yourself in the context, right? It's like, why do you take college tours or why do you live in certain areas or study certain topics? Um, and what you're saying is from, from some of the emotional work, it's like, you got to listen to like, maybe guide the compass and then it's like, use your head to make the plan to go do it, to pressure test. If the smell, right. Feel right. Conversations. Right. Whereas I think when you're not mindful or tuned into your, emotional areas like you just try and forcefully plan without understanding how to be guided by yourself that's right decision making from the neck up is insufficient uh you need to involve all of you in the decision making and i think that especially when it comes to professional choices uh, we tend to be biased uh, toward the rational and to think that, you know, it should be, in fact, from the neck up because it, it's part of your professional, not your personal. Your personal life can be the heart, can be the soul, but the, the work uh, has to be, some, the studying has to be something. No, not at all. The, the two things come hand in hand and we live as whole beings. So we're not just cerebral. <laughs> of, course, of course, we're also emotional. And, you know, bringing the, the emotion uh, and the spiritual, if need be, uh, to bear on those more uh, work and study-related choices is essential. 
we don't but sometimes we know we we live in, we live in a culture that does not necessarily remind us of that all the time we are reminded that we should be very much with our head nicely planted on our neck <laughs> before we make any professional choice that's very limiting yeah living from the neck up evoking <laughs> it's great <laughs> um Man, we're getting lost in the trance here. This is wonderful. I'm like, where am I coming back to? I don't even remember. Um, the, I managed to confuse the heck out of you, huh? Already? No, not. not I'm, I'm tracking with you, but you know, sometimes I even like to. Well, I like to go off course on these episodes. I always like to bring them back to you know, like share the story kind of, but it, I'm like, so in another world that we got to figure out where we want to come back to. So it's, it's great. Um, so, oh yeah. I, okay. Now I remember where we were. So you were, um, getting a lot of stimuli information, trying to understand what was right for you and how to navigate and you, the fact that you didn't know so early, like so many people did, but kind of taking that time to, get different experiences and, and, and learn. You said, I, I figured out, or you, you learned along the way you wanted to be an academic, but you had no idea going in. What were some of those, maybe if you look back on the journey, kind of first memories that said, this is right, or this feels good, or I met that person there smelled like this, you know, that said, this is for me. What were some of those why moments? Um, in the earlier days. Yeah, it was, a, it's always um, a matter of trying something and, and see how you fare and how you feel. Um, there's another uh, very uh, wonderful in, scholar in my field called Carl Weick, who has a theory of what he calls, he calls enactment. What does it mean? It means that until you have to take action you have to enact something, you actually do it so that you create a response, right? You know, mm -hmm. I don't know what's, what's going to be if I push this button. The only way to know is to push it. And when you push it, you get a response. And that response will give you the answer you're searching for, essentially. And so for me, it was, it was like that I tried out different things. I tried to study different subjects. And some I hated just completely, I couldn't stand them. And others, I found myself totally energized by. Mm. And that's when I, I got my enactment. You know, I tried it out. I went there, I did it. And I got a response from the system who told me, mm. this this is actually interesting. And mm. then, you know, you, you do the same thing for the things you're capable of and you think you're not capable of. You try things that you turn out to be really ter terrible at. And yes, we can always learn, we can always grow, but up to a point. I mean, uh, there are going to be some things that happen to be particularly hard for you, given your whatever neck or head or rest of your body um, configuration, that are not going to be good for you. And others that will you need to feel a little bit more at home. And you oh yeah, this, this is a space I can inhabit. Mm -hmm. This is a... a an activity that can bring out the best in me. And I had those, those glimpses along mm -hmm. the way. I was thrown into a classroom to teach a bunch of executives. Believe it or not, I was like 24, I want to say. 
And um, I had read some stuff on decision-making that I thought was really cool and really interesting. It wasn't even the thing that I really was an expert in. And I just brought to these guys and I had put them through some stuff and they resonated and we had a great time and they learned and I learned. And I thought, this is, this is something that I really like. I really like this interaction. You know, I learned <laughs> something and then I figured out a way to bring it to other people. And it works. Uh, it requires a certain understanding of what it means to learn that thing. I mean, that that's part of the awareness. What does it mean? When I learn something, what happens in my brain? When I have a hard time learning something, what's the obstacle? Hmm. Because once you understand that, you can teach it to somebody else because the obstacles you experience, likely they are experiencing too. And you can mediate, you can take them there on that path because you, you went down it yourself. So it's a bit of emotional intelligence, a bit of understanding your audience, understanding that the, the, what they're going through in that moment. Are, are they getting it? Are they not? What's the problem? And you, I, I just did it in, in practice and you learn as you do it. Then you've got some potential there. There's yeah. other things that not so much. And you get feedback along the way. You know, people yeah. tell you, oh, the thing you did was, was really excellent. And at the time, they don't talk to you because they don't want to tell you how bad it was. And then, you know, you know, mm -hmm. you know, from, from that input. Yeah. You should go. Yeah. The enactment. I, I feel like every time I ask a question, you like bring it back with something really uh, like with the architecture around it that like just like makes even more sense of what you're then going to go say. It's like a beautiful way of answering a question. Um, I don't know if that's intentional, but uh, it's, it's good. I mean, what, what's the, the quote, every action has a reaction or every action has a consequence. I mean, but, uh, something you said, it's like you swing one way, you're going to get input and stimulus back. And that's more, more data for you to process and interpret and feel around to give you the quote unquote signals of, is this right? And what I think what's neat about what you're saying is it's pretty universal, right? It's universal to a job, a place to live, a relationship, you know, big life things where it can be unsettling until we maybe feel more aligned. And I think what you're saying is, you know, the best thing to do is kind of listen and take action, see how you respond and then figure out how they just take more steps. And I like, I like the way you put it, Brian, because this idea, you, you got to swing though. You got to swing. Right. <laughs> you yeah. cannot just sit there and be entirely uh, paralyzed, theoretical about, you know, mm. and I talk as an academic, it's all about theory. So actually I should be the last person to say this, but you got to swing meaning you got to take that move, make that step, try it mm -hmm. as opposed to just contemplating it in your head. It's, it's just not good enough. And that's why when I, when I learned about you traveling West, I recognized that swinging. Mm -hmm. and they, it, it, sometimes the, the, the swinging can be painful. Yeah. Uh, in fact, actually, it's often painful because you don't know what's going to happen when you swing. And but you know what you leave behind. You don't know what you're going to find. And the uncertainty can be so overwhelming because, you know, we all we say this in the book. We all uh, really long for a sense of safety. 
mm-hmm. and we long for a sense of worth. Yeah. And when you swing, you know that you might make yourself unsafe and you have no clue if what you're going to find is going to make you feel worthy or stupid or incompetent. You, It's a risk. You know, you're, you're really going out on a limb and those two basic needs of safety and self-worth are threatened potentially. I mean, yeah. you, if you find them, yay, right? <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a good news. But no wonder people don't swing sometimes because they're not secure enough in that sense that they are worth something. Mm. And, and it's okay to take a risk and it's okay to feel unsafe for a bit of time because there will be a way out at the end. But it takes um, it takes having grown up and, uh, and being supported and being validated enough that you have the strength to do that. And some mm. people are deprived of that security. They're deprived of the sense that it's okay to take risks, that the, the world will turn in the right direction eventually because you've seen it turn in the wrong direction too, too much yeah. and you don't have faith anymore. And so, you know, it's a vicious cycle potentially uh, or, or virtuous if you're lucky. Yeah. I was thinking what you were saying, I know you talked about the journey that I've been on, but on the flip side of that, right? I think there's the, you talked about not not leaving or not swinging or not taking the, the train of independence that you took and I've taken multiple times. There, There's a lot of, another side of that though, there's a, a immense amount of comfort and that sense of control when you don't do that, like, you know, or where maybe you're placing worth or you feel powerful because that's like the only environment or construct that, that you know, to be true. And like, sometimes it takes a life force to really kind of unearth you to say, not to run, not to take a swing, to run away from yourself, but like take a swing to run closer into yourself. And so I just, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm validating what you said, and I think you're right. It, it, sometimes the unknown is much scarier than the known uh, and the comfort of what is, you know, to be true. And to constantly live like that and grow and evolve is not for everyone. You know, a lot of people are comfortable in their way of doing things for decades. So I just, I love how you're putting it together for us. Yeah. And it also speaks to not only, uh, you know, our journey as, as an individual, uh, where you take comfort in that control, in that predictability. It, it speaks actually to the development of people who lead others and how they lead them. Because when you are in need of control, because it's too scary to let go, you end up hoarding your power and lording it over others as a reaction to your own insecurity, really, to your inability to see that you don't need all that control, mm-hmm. that you can be happy with who you are and change who you are. And it's okay. You have enough. Yeah. You've sorted yourself out enough that it's okay to relinquish some of that control. And that can mean swinging, swinging for yourself, picking up and taking the train, or it can mean giving some autonomy and some leeway and some sense of independence to your people, the people that you lead, the people that you manage. 
that it takes a big person to be able to do that. And one of the things that I would really, really, really like to see as, as an outcome of this book I've written with my dear friend, uh, Julie Batilano, is, is to, to show people who have some measure of power that their aspiration should be to not need to hoard it, mm. which is our natural tendency. Sure. Because of this fear of lack of control that you were describing earlier, that, that that's what leads somebody who gains some power to just grab onto it mm. and not letting go with a tight fist. Mm-hmm. And that is bad for everyone. It yeah. just does not work well. <laughs> and, you know, you just, you just wish you could tell people, just like we said, it's okay. It's okay to swing. It's okay. I wish we could educate everyone in a position of power that it's okay to distribute that power a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I want to build on this. I actually want to love to dive into the book now, just to kind of what led to it and, and some of the key parts of it, just because I think it's a very powerful book. Uh, <laughs> lack of a better word. And, and, and just to like, just even be vulnerable here, like what led me to your book was the fact that so my mom always told me growing up, like, keep your power. And I never understood what that meant or hold your power. Like I never, and she's like a strong woman. Um, but I didn't understand what that meant. And then I remember having a conversation with someone back in April. I was like, I'd love to talk about what it means to like have authentic power. And I kind of wrap my head or contextualize like actually what that meant. And then as I left West, um, and a lot of unearthing, I realized the worth was very low and how like, I, I was been giving my power away. My, my whole, as the book would say, or the, what the terminology goes, my whole, like almost my whole life in a lot of ways and not even realizing it and, under, and understanding why. And so when your book came out, it was like such the timing of it was like really profound because it was, I was finally at the stage of understanding lack of worth and power and why, but not like, okay, what does this mean moving forward? And so I remember going to the Barnes and Noble in Salt Lake city as I was passing through and I just bought it on the spot, like 10 minutes later, like it was a very quick, like, I got to read this. So and getting to Oregon, it was the first thing I read. And it was just like, wow. And so anyways, I, I wanted to share that. I don't know if you said that openly, but it was from a place of like, this could be so helpful. And in reading it, it, was, it wasn't this like rah, rah, woo, woo. It was a practical and objective book and that can help in life and leadership in so many ways. I mean, the thought that went into it was, it was unbelievable. So I just, I want to say thank you uh, live and... I want to, I want to know from you what led to writing it with your co-author and let's start there. Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you. I I am just in, in partly in this belief that it is still possible for somebody to walk into a bookstore, see a book and be drawn to it, buy it on the spot, knowing nothing about it really. And and reading and finding something valuable in it. it. It's a miracle of literature. It's the miracle of the publishing industry that I think we should celebrate because we are at the point now where we consume 
knowledge and insight so quickly sometimes and from sources that are really sometimes all over the place. And it's beautiful to see that the books still can do their magic. So thank you very much for, for telling me how you found uh, Power for All. But why, do, why did Julie and I um, write this book? We encounter a lot of people, different kinds. It could be the, the typical business school professional. It could be the uh, social entrepreneur who wants to innovate to make people's lives better. It could be the healthcare professional who wants to do better for patients and create you know, a system where people are not left in dire straits. It could be many, many, many different kinds. The leader who wants to revolutionize a company, an organization, an institution, and runs into obstacles. And we knew from working with them, teaching them, that very often the reason why they could not achieve these very um, positive goals was that they misunderstood power. They knew they needed it, but either they recoiled from it because as they had this idea that power is a nasty little thing, you know, it's, it's about manipulation, coercion, being bad. And so that they just don't want to engage or they, they do see the, the potential to shape the world, but they don't know how it functions well enough to be able to embrace it and do good, good work through it. And so we, we, had to, we had to write it and we had to write it in, in a, almost like a small to big and big to small kind of way. You, you, you have to look at it from the perspective of its mechanics and the mechanics work in interpersonal relationships as much as they work in international relationships. The, the mechanics are always the same. It's kind of remarkable how simple it is at its core. But then we had to also deal with the personal development. So there's a psychological component of it. There's a, there's a philosophical component of it. What does it mean to want power? What does it mean to, what did your mother say? Uh, hold your power? No. What is it? I don't give away your power. Keep your don't power. give away your power. Keep your power. What, what are those things like? for you as an individual who is trying to find your own relationship with this thing. And this thing, by the way, is everywhere, no matter what you do. Power is, you know, Bertrand Russell said, you know, uh, power is the essential law in human behavior as much as energy is essential law in physics. You cannot behave as a human being without understanding power. It's just as simple as that, because power is the energy to influence the world around us. And anything you do, you want to influence the world around. I want to pick up my phone and read the stupid phone. I need power of the eyes and the muscles to, to do that. It's a simple action. I want to change my work environment because I don't think it's functioning the way it should. I need power to do that. I want to stop the world from going off the rails and um, seeing our little species go to hell. I need power to affect the changes necessary. So it's really permeates every single aspect of our world. And 
we were finding that there's a lot of books on power, different aspects of it, but none was connecting all these dots mm-hmm. the way we wanted to connect them. And so we said, well, we're going to have to write our own. And <laughs> so, and so we did. It was a, it, um, it was a labor of love though. Yeah. It, it took a lot out of us. It gave us a lot and it also took a lot. It's continuing to give a lot. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you for, for validating that it's doing that. I, I, it makes me feel very good. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think the beginning of the book talked about, if I remember, it's been a couple of months, but the people think of power as a bad thing. And I love what you said, but to influence, have influence in a world, let's just say in an impactful and a good way, you need power. And need to understand what that represents. And that what you said about like human behavior to think like for 28 years, like I moved through the world without understanding the definition of this and what that meant. I mean, that's crazy. Like that, when you said that, I was like, made me look internally. And I think you're right. It's, we, it's fundamental to understanding and how we move through the world. Mm-hmm. So but you were only, tw- you're only 28. So you're, you're ahead of the game, Brian, don't worry about it. <laughs> you're doing very well. I, I, I'm seeing, Actually, one of the one of the typical reactions are are coming from people that are well down the path of their career. Is some of them are on the edge of retirement or they are retired, hmm. and they say, oh, I so wish I had had this huh. when I was young and I was trying to figure it out and I really didn't get it." Yeah, and it's, it, so for them, it's a more retrospective look. And then, you know, uh, there are many young people like yourself who hopefully they will get it, they will put it to use. And there are people midway, you know, that have done a bunch of things, but now maybe have a second, second look at how they've done the things they've done and they can do them better. Now, of course, once you are uh, given a tool, you also need guardrails to use it properly. Right. Right. Because the power is a double edged sword, like every tool, you know, you can you can use a hammer to just put a beautiful, gorgeous picture on your wall or you can use it to smash somebody's head. (laughs) It's still a hammer, but it powers the same way. So that's our hope that uh, you'll also learn through this way to think about power, not only how to gain it and keep it the way your mother uh, advised you to do, but uh, how to deploy it. Sure. What? Yeah. What? yeah, absolutely. And, and I love what you said, because when we first chatted back in October or September, I brought up Robert Greene's work and, um, you know, he's an influential person in the space, but I also like, it, it's kind of sheepish. And so I, we connected over that. I remember. And so for, let's, let's not spend time there. I just wanted to, to acknowledge that, um, <laughs> for, for you, you know, and, in and Julia, you know, I feel like you defined power in the book very explicitly and very well that really made it kind of stick. So just for the audience's sake here, how would, how, how would you define power? How do you know if you have power? Um, what, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, power is quite simply the ability, the capacity to influence the behavior of others. And whether you influence it uh, through persuasion or through coercion, you're changing the way they behave, right? You're influencing them into doing something differently. And where does it come from? That's really where the mechanics of power come into play. You are able to influence others 
when you control their access to something they want. So you got to have something that they want and they have to go through you to get it. They cannot get it easily elsewhere. If you have something they want and it's not so simple for them to get around you to get access to that thing, that, that is you control their access to that thing, then you'll be able to influence their behavior. Why? Because they're dependent on you for something. Now, this all sounds a little bit ominous because I, I, I told, told you about my overnight train to independence and all of a sudden I'm talking about being dependent on somebody and power as the inverse of dependence. But the dependency can be based on different kinds of valued things. I can uh, be dependent on you for something very material, money, or even, you know, a certain privilege. Or I can be dependent on you for, for uh, helping me feed fundamental needs that are more emotional, psychological, spiritual. Through you, I converse with you and I derive from the conversation a sense of competence or a sense of independence of mind, of, of autonomy, of thought, a sense of relatedness, that you understand me, I understand you, and we are connected as human beings. These are all resources. They sound a little bit uh, ephemeral, but it turns out that human beings actually value such ephemeral things very deeply, well beyond material resources. So when I say, you have power over somebody when you control their access to something they value. Mm. The things they value take many forms, some mm. of which are gorgeous and some of which are not. <laughs> and it depends very much on, on our growth as individuals to value the right things and not be so concerned about others. I think that a <laughs> Buddhist monk would tell us exactly the same things, even though we didn't write this book as Buddhist monks. Uh, I, I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not that wise, unfortunately. But, you know, they talk about cravings and the fact that it is grasping for resources that is, is at the root of a lot of our suffering, you know, put it, and you know this, this work and this philosophy better than me. What they, they're telling us is that you can live in, in a power relationship much more functionally if you clarify for yourself, what are the things you value? What are the things that the other person values? That's where your, your interdependence uh, emerges. Mm. But it better be about things that should be valued as opposed to the ones that distract us from what actually satisfies our deeper need for safety and self-worth. That's where it becomes more psychological, the trick. But the mechanics are just like that. So any power relationship is defined by four elements. Do I have something you want? Do you have alternatives to me to get it? And then the reciprocal, do you have something I want? And can I get it from someone else that is not Brian? These four things are always what you have to think about when you say, how, how, how are we relating to each other on a, on a power dependence uh, level? And again, you and I at this point are mutually dependent because you have something I really value, the ability to take me 
to think about things that are important to me, to my existence. And I don't find many people that, that can do that for me. And maybe oh, well, I'm assuming that you, you find some value in talking to me, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. Reveal preferences as an economist would, would tell us. So we are in this, in this mutual dependent relationship. Is it a nasty power play, power game? Not at all, not at all. So, but, but it's still a power relationship because it's still in a, on a focus on what are we offering to each other and hmm. how many alternatives do we have to achieve this wonderful thing that we're striving for. Hmm. It's still about power, though, even though it feels uh, like a hmm. soft uh, and fuzzy <laughs> type of incarnation of power. Yeah. Uh, it's so good the way you, you put it, you guys put it. You know, it's funny. I definitely have thought about relationships more from a, a power perspective, not in a manipulative way, but about to drive decision-making in a way that's beneficial for all. And it's been helpful to have the lens. And so when you shared with me about how you see our relationship, I never thought about actually that. I just thought about, oh, I really like what you share. And I like, <laughs> you know, and I think the root, so when something I was kind of thinking about as you were talking is to understand the dynamic of power takes a ton of self-awareness and emotional intelligence, right? To, to be aware of others, yourself, and the relationship between the two and how that needs, not needs, but how that could play out or should play out over time because of... So anyways, I, I just like that, that rooted awareness to even be, have an idea of power, um, I think it's, it's so important that I've been reflecting on as you were talking. So I just had to point that out. Yeah. And, and I will say, I think it's important also that we, we make clear that the self-awareness, you, you can actually detach it from an understanding of the mechanics. There are people in this world that understand the mechanics of power very, very well. They have a nice big radar for what people fear what people want, and they use it to accomplish nefarious goals. Every autocrat in this world, every uh, mafia boss, every uh, manipulator at work knows how power works very well. So you can understand the mechanics but then the self-awareness uh, is what allows you to use those mechanics for constructive purposes versus destructive. Because the people who need to use power to extract things for themselves are very needy people. Unfortunately, they're very smart in terms of, of utilizing the mechanics. But they have not sorted out themselves enough to know that they don't need they don't need to be grasping for the extra billion or the extra the extra power perk. But many people are still very much driven by that. That's what makes them feel safe. That's what makes them feel superior. That's what makes them feel good about themselves. And it's a it's a wild chase uh, for something that. We let we lead them to to die alone and unhappy, <laughs> but they don't know it because they haven't sorted out the 
the, the, the self-awareness that you're describing. But you could, you can actually, you can think, you can understand power from the neck up and just be mm. very smart about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when you comes to deploying it and using it, you don't know what to do with it. You're yeah. all about accumulating more of it. Yeah. Because of the sense of control we talked about earlier that some people desperately crave. Sure. So something that's I think really profound in what you're saying is, and, and this is also my own experience as of recent. Um, so I don't want to say something that's not right, but what you're, I think what I'm hearing you say is there's people very smart who know how to fears of others. They know how to use, pick up power, this and that. However, though, when used destructively are used to just obtain more, there's actually a lot of suffering. I wrote down there's, there, there's a lot of suffering from that. And I would argue, and I'd love your take on this. Like actually the more you, you desire power or the more you want to obtain actually maybe long-term is, is a very weak position because I think it's a very powerful position when you surrender to the wanting because you, you don't come across needy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it is very true that you, I observe it in, in the leaders that I work with and interact with and study. Um, the ones who don't need to hold on to their power position are, are often seen as much more centered and profound and good by mm. others. The the issue is that we also observe in our environments a lot of people who succeed, quote unquote, meaning they achieve very high rank positions, very influential positions in the manipulative dark way in which power can be used. And so I, people look around and go, yeah, 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 Tiziana, you, you sound like a utopian because I see that some of my bosses got there not the way you're saying we should get there. They got mm. there in all the wrong ways, which is totally mm. true. It, it, does, it can happen because this is a wanting access and control over those resources is a very good predictor of you obtaining access and control over those resources. When you want it really badly, you will likely get it if you, because you apply all of your capabilities to it. So I want to be in charge of that budget. I want to be the CEO. I want to be the boss. And so you you do all the deployment of your talents and capabilities toward that goal. So you you could obtain it in the long, you know, potentially. But it doesn't mean that you are embracing a power in a way that will make you satisfied. Mm-hmm. Happy with the mm. work and its impact on yourself and others. It, it, they're very different things. Uh, being in that position, being able to, uh, I, you know, fine. You have satisfaction in being able to keep me under your thumb and make me do things and work me like a puppet and just make me feel inferior. You enjoy that. Good. The enjoyment is fleeting. Just like, you know, people who keep track of the, like, of the likes they get on social media. How happy does it make you to see that you got whatever, a thousand followers, 10,000 followers? 
And how long does it last, that happiness? That's what we're talking about. You, you can get the 10,000 followers, the 100,000, the million followers. You can, if you apply yourself and you really single-handedly pursue that goal. But what will it do for you in the long run? That remains a question. And this is more a personal thing. Yeah. Then we have the big thing. What has it done for humanity that some people have pursued profit for so long with no qualms they have created an enormous amount of wealth for themselves at the expense of the sustainability of our, of our climate and the, for our species. Yeah, you, you, good for you. You are a gazillionaire. Uh, in the meantime, we have uh, deteriorated our ability to live on this planet the way we have, uh, all in the pursuit of something that is very short-term, very attractive to some people, but long run, not really, not really. That What does it, what will it do for you no, uh, once you die? Because we all will. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting, again, it goes back to, you cannot exercise power in your environment, therefore influence the world around you. You cannot do it well if you haven't sorted yourself out. That's the bottom line. Fascinating. Hits home very, very well. What you were saying and what I wrote down, right? You chase money, you chase the followers. That's external position. That's external power, right? And it's, it's more fleeting. It sounds like, or how I would, uh, I'm thinking about it. Whereas the, the sense of internal power, the not needing the followers or the relationship or the money or the job title, like that's a more internal and whole, whole place of power that is maybe more, has more permanence. Uh, is that fair? I think so. I, 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 it is fair. And it actually, the, when you articulate it that way, you know, I'm, I'm confronted with the fact that, you know, as a social scientists, we end up in a place that is not too different from what a Buddhist would say. Uh, because what, you know, these are people that when you ask them, what is, a, what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And those, those big existential questions. They talk about you're, you're making the world better, right? Achieving happiness by leaving a positive impact on around you, whatever that means. That, you know, maybe I'm paraphrasing a little bit too much because again, I'm not particularly skilled uh, as, as, a, as a student of those philosophies, but that's roughly the idea. And what you're describing as fleeting external uh, manifestations of power really has to do with that. You know, is it, is it about you pursuing something for yourself because you haven't found what you really need and want? Your, your search, you're scrambling, you're scrambling, you're kind of desperate. Why would you want to want another billion? Honestly. <laughs> and I know that a lot of people that listen to your show, including myself, we're not in the billion category whatsoever. 
But what I'm saying is that it, it can become so dysfunctional and so misguided, the pursuit of power, that it comes down to, I want to be the biggest dude on this block, no matter why. Why? Why do you need that? And so the, the more internal view of it is, am I able to harness power and use it in a way that increases happiness, mine and yours, which is a really much more non-craving view of power. It's always power. Power doesn't change. It's always the same thing. It's right. really how you use it. Sure. What, what do you use it for? And yeah. That, yeah, that's the hope would be, you know, humanity would be so much better off if more of us had figured out that you don't need to run after the self-aggrandizing, the, the extreme control, the sense of, of greatness because you get to put other people down and hold them down. Some people find the sense of control in that, in controlling others. And that is a very st sad state of affairs, except that we're surrounded by so many. And what I see that the, the, the best leaders I observe are the ones who are completely comfortable, say, I do not need, I do not need to control everyone. What I need is to see my organization thrive, do good work, uh, innovate, uh, change people's lives a little bit for the better, uh, maybe make uh, things a little bit more functional, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more creative. Ah, that's my satisfaction. And to accomplish that, I will give power to anybody who can contribute to that goal. And everybody will be happier as a result. And there are some leaders who do that. I, I like to, to talk about Ed Catmull. Have you ever heard of this guy? Yes, you have. Yeah. Because you, you're, you're on top of... of uh, of uh, cool leaders, but a lot of people don't know who he is, even though they, of course, they would know who Elon Musk is, uh, or they would know who, you know, whatever, Tim Cook or whatever, you know, Steve Jobs. Uh, they don't know Ed Catmull, who is, uh, has been the leader of uh, Pixar Studios for a long time. And you wouldn't know about him because he doesn't need to be known. <laughs> he, he doesn't need to take the credit for it all. At least as far as I understand him from the from the account of him that I gather from my friend and colleague, Linda Hill at the Harvard Business School. This is a kind of leader who uh, is understands that you influence others by creating a stage on which they can perform their best. You don't need to be on the stage. You don't need to show off. You don't need to be the one presenting your latest creation and taking the credit, essentially, because that's what happens when these guys go on stage and present their latest blah. Um, they basically, take, you know, they put themselves as the face of this contribution. He doesn't need to do that. He lets the work speak for itself. And the joy there is to enable these very creative, very technically proficient people to step up and improve and learn new things and collaborate and find that mutual dependence that we were describing earlier, that where we do our best work collectively. It's beautiful. Those are the people that we should celebrate more mm -hmm. than the ones who 
feel the urge to be on stage. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I, I think what you said about leaders who can let go and put their people on the platform to do their best work hits home. And I think it's scary at the same time for a leader to let go um, when they like that sense of control. And it's, I'm, you know, part of, I'll just personal, it's just with everything that this book's about. Like when I left the summer, I was so scared and nervous that like it was all going to fall apart because it was like, I had to take my hands off the wheel. Not that I didn't kind of put in effort, but I, it was just a forcing function of that, the, the journey and the business, like the team, everything just started almost like locking into place much better and accelerating faster. Like the less I was trying to force it to be something it wasn't supposed to be. And it, it's made me reflect on everything you're saying of like, even though you might be in a position of power by title or this or that, like the internal power of not letting it, letting it be what it's supposed to be without forcing it to be something it's not is I think a hard lesson, but it's really like the natural order of what's supposed to happen. And I think it's that tight gripping though, of that control is such a comfortable place for leaders because that's how they, like you said, attained maybe those positions in the first place. And so, yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating. And I keep coming back to what you said about, you can only really obtain or like see that thing in true power you're talking about once you've like settled the past or figured, figured certain things out about yourself, because how can you have the awareness to it? Um, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and and I will say also that, you know, I, I'm not, um, I'm not denying. In fact, actually, I want to remind everybody that there is your own personal journey as a leader and as a manager of others that, you know, you have to come to grips with your need to be in control or whatever. But then, you know, you could not have left Brian and, and, and let your team fall in place and find their way of operating without you being there every day if you hadn't empowered them in the first place. So you need to give them the tools, the resources, the confidence, the technical expertise, the experience that they need to be able to function without you. So that ultimate what empowering really means. It's not just, oh, off you go, baby. I delegate to you. I don't need to control. I don't need to oversee. I don't need to keep you in check. I trust you. Well, you know, you <laughs> up to a point, you, you cannot trust if you haven't given them the resources they need to, to do the work. You, you need to give them the resources. You need to get them there and help them find their power, as you, as you mentioned earlier. Mm. So the, 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 the two things, that there's a substance to all of this. Competence, uh, intelligence, expertise, learning, all of those things are things that you create by empowering. Mm. And the learning is often reciprocal. You know, you, you, you left and you learned a lot about yourself and you, you're giving them space to learn about their work and, and how to do it without you being there all the time. But you see, it's reciprocal mm. and it's not in a void. You mm. cannot just kind of uh, let go of control before the, the things are in place for you to be able to do that. So, you know, I, I don't blame leaders who are not ready to, to, to give autonomy. If 
that's because they don't think that the people are ready to drive, right? The problem is that a lot of leaders are not ready to give, give away control because of them. Personally, they're not ready, not because their people are not ready. And so you have to sort out what, which is which. Are you not delegating because you haven't done enough work to develop them? Or you're not delegating because you personally are not confident enough that everything will be fine. You know, we will accomplish our goal. It is something collective we're trying to accomplish. And it's not just my own grandeur. That's the, the, the self-awareness you were describing earlier. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Well, I think what's, thank you. And what I think is so fascinating and maybe an insight that I wasn't expecting from your book is to show up with that whole sense of power is really directly tied to leadership. And I like, I wasn't expecting the book really to be a leadership book, but the way that it was, it was a book on power, but through like a lens of leadership. And I wasn't expecting that, but it took me on an unexpected journey for sure about like myself. Uh, and I think it was, but to write it in that way, I, you know, there's a lot of leadership books out there, but it was, it was kind of, it wasn't disguised as that. Like, I didn't think it was a leadership book going in, but the takeaways were about leadership. And I thought that was a brilliant part of the book was the leadership lessons I learned without going into it, thinking I was going to do it. So it caught me by surprise. And I think that's a beautiful thing of, of a good book. You walk away with things you never expected to get going in. That's right. And, and if we situate the, those leadership lessons in this bigger picture of how come, why is it that power is so unequally distributed? Mm. What creates those hierarchies where some people are at the top, some people are at the bottom, and they all get stuck there. And it's so self-perpetuating. What, what happens? You know, that's more of a, of a bird's eye view of what, power is made of in, in, in our social context. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, what is the leadership of joining forces with others look like when you're trying to change those big systems that make some people really dependent and a few really advantaged and uh, we don't seem to be able to get out of those things. You know, you, you see tendencies like what we're observing now through the pandemic, inequality has increased in most parts of the world. Mm. So a crisis that was supposed to be, oh, we're all in the same boat. The pandemic doesn't look uh, in the eye, but it doesn't, doesn't care if you're rich or poor. That is not true. That is not true. And so part of the, of the, what you need this book for is to see why, why mm. do we find ourselves in those dynamics and then what, you, what the leadership required to get out of it. And sometimes the leadership required just you personal, you know, you and your organization, your company sometimes isn't the joining forces with others. It's where you cannot do it alone. You cannot, you just, it's too big. It's too embedded and structured in our our environment that if I don't coalesce with others, it's never going to happen. Yeah. And so we, we see some of the movements out now, you know, people fighting for different rights, for different freedoms, for different sustainable ways of living. All of those things that we see people fighting for require a more collective way of exercising leadership 
as opposed to the heroic view that sometimes we ascribe to it. Yeah. Well, on that note, you know, I think it's been a self-check for many people from a more privileged perspective to develop that awareness of a lot of the inequities in the world and to realize by having to quote unquote sit in place for, for a couple of years, some of the people who truly have it worse and why, and to face that if they're like ready to take that in, you know, definitely created more of a conscious for some that have been willing to receive it um, way of living and understanding. And I, in your book, it does, you know, I, I think towards the end or halfway through, it talks a lot about why, right. And the power dynamics of, of how we came to be where we are and what needs to change. And so yep. I love how you address the message thinking about all of society and, you know, the book power for all, um, and what that means. So I just want to say, thank you for the work, the, path the messiness of it all and like sharing it i mean it's such a gift and i am sure it's only or hopefully just only the beginning for you and your co-author it's a really beautiful piece of work thank you brian uh, the, the 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 gift is 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 reciprocal because you have uh, read it in in with the with the insight and the perspective that allows this book to have its value and we 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 hope that many will join you and um and maybe maybe together we're going to be able to shift a little bit the mindset that we all have around power sometimes it's a little too destructive a little too uh dark hmm. for our for our own good and uh even though that exists as a perspective but we have to be aware that Power is much bigger and much more varied than that. And so more power to you. Oh, well, thank you. Well, to uh, close, Tiziana, where can people buy the book? Where can people find you? Where can all the, th all the things? All the things. Well, uh, I, every, what's the saying? Uh, uh, wherever books are sold, <laughs> anywhere you, you secure your books, you went into the Barnes and Nobles at, at that time, uh, you know, well, we do like the independent bookstores that have been suffering so much and they do such a good work. And that is good. But of course, you can get it online pretty much anywhere. The easiest way to, to track us down and see what, what, how we have applied the ideas of this book to different things that people might care about, you know, ranging topics from the return to work, the hybrid, to how do we, what's a post pandemic world going to look, be looking like? What does it mean to lead? Uh, all, of the, all of the things. What does it mean to find a job when you're looking for a job uh, it, from a power perspective? Uh, you, it, the easiest way is to go to our book website, which is called aptly powerforallbook.com. And there you can find the information about us and, and even contact us uh, if, you, if you so wish, because we love to hear from people who engage with this, this set of ideas. Well, amazing. Congratulations for being the longest interview uh, on the God. podcast. That is, <laughs> that's, a, that's not a horrible thing. Like no, no. I, I, um, you know, it's funny. I, I, an hour is a good format, but I had nothing on the calendar this afternoon, which I think was great because I think we've been able to build a lot of rapport up into this moment where usually I go in blind, you know, on, on most, 
And so given the rapport, like we could really connect and I thought it was really nice. So thank you for coming on. It was beautiful. Every minute, second, millisecond of it and uh, appreciate it. Likewise, Brian, I cannot believe we spoke for as long as we have. And uh, I am grateful that our respective calendars were so, oh, I think we knew deep inside that this would happen. <laughs> so right. We kept our calendars open, but thank you. Thank you so much for having me, for allowing these ideas to, to reach the people that listen to your show. That is excellent. Well, I, thank uh, you. I am very grateful. We'll, we'll chalk it up to the universe. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.